please stand and join us as we come together as God's people and praise him through our songs.
Father, we want to give you thanks today that Christ is risen. It changes everything. And we pray this, this morning that we will, be, we will be enamored anew with the risen Christ. That our ears will be open to Christ and our eyes will be attentive to Christ. And our hearts will be ready to receive all that you have for us in Christ. Thank you for being present with us today. Let our worship honor you and bring glory to you and change us. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Share what a greeting with others who are here in worship today before you're seated. a quick note of some uh, things happening in the life of our church. 
Uh, tonight, small groups continue meeting, and Koinonia is in Wesley Chapel at 7. Uh, Wednesday evening, activities for children, youth, a prayer group for adults. Let me just note that the, um, the King's Kids Club girls have their uh, a swim party this Wednesday night, so they will be meeting at the gym uh, up on the college campus instead of here at the church. So that's for the girls. Wednesday night's club ministry will be at the, at the college pool. There are uh, a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin. I want to remember those connected to us as well as things around the world. And we also there's also an insert in your bulletin about uh, prayer for John Aronson. And uh, John is in the Sudan and uh, is trying to, uh, to work uh, in some uh, areas of peacemaking. And I know that uh, John would appreciate our prayers as he is uh, in a very difficult situation, uh, potentially dangerous situation. But we want to pray for God to use him and to, to bring peace to this place as well as many other places of the world. We, uh, we have many people in our congregation who uh, are involved in ministry, who are involved in uh, helping uh, each of us grow in our faith and, and uh, helping our children, youth, uh, each other as adults. And we want to take a moment to, this morning to just pray for you and ask God's grace upon you as you uh, move into and continue in ministry. So if you're involved in a ministry of the church in, in any way, leading, helping, organizing uh, for any of the ministries that take place on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesdays or any other times during the week, maybe things like the library or helping out in the church office, I'm going to ask you to just stand. If you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure, well, you probably are, so go ahead and stand uh, anyway. So we, we want to take a moment to pray for you. If you're in a, in a leadership position, uh, serving on uh, committees or, or boards, uh, that also we also want to pray for you as well. Lord, we want to thank you for every person who stands here before us today. We know that you are pleased with their willingness to serve. We know that you're pleased with their humble spirit and with the unity of heart and mind that we have as a congregation. Most of all, Father, we come today to acknowledge how much we need you. We, we are awestruck sometimes that you would use us in ministry. And yet you do over and over again. So we pray that you would bless every person standing here with your grace and with your strength for all the, of the, the challenges and the issues that come to them. Help them to see the fruit of their service to you and to us and, and to others around us. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a sense of joy in our service and that the joy that we feel would be contagious and that it would inspire all of us in ministry in every way that we can. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives and in our ministry as we work together to bring your kingdom purposes on earth as they are in heaven. So let your anointing rest upon every person standing before us today. Fill them with grace and mercy with the power of your spirit. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We'd ask the ushers to assist us in giving of our tithes and offerings and children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church.
great God calls us to, to bring before him the concerns of our lives. And as we do that now, if you'd like to use the altar as a place where you come and you pray, I invite you to join me. Father, you are a great God, far beyond our understanding, great in power, great in mercy and love. Father, as we come to worship you today, we are all wrestling with burdens of one kind or another. Some of us feel anxious about 
things that are in our lives or things that we wish were in our lives. There are days where it feels that peace is an elusive dream and hope feels out of reach. Sometimes it's busyness or the pressure of expectations. Sometimes it's sins that just keep nagging us. Sometimes we forget about each other, that our lives are intertwined with each other. That you create us for unity and compassion and love. Father, at every point of our need, hear our prayers for forgiveness, for grace, for strength, for your presence. Father, our world is a sea of hurting people. Famine, poverty, slavery, abuse, insecurity. We pray that you will bring healing to our world. And give to each of us a passion to be channels of peace, truth, and compassion and justice that the world would know you and your love and your mercy and the saving grace of Jesus Christ we pray for John Aronson and the work that he is doing in the Sudan Lord for anything to change you're going to have to do Something that is above and beyond what we can imagine. And that's our prayer. In the Sudan, in the Middle East, in places throughout the world, work miraculously. Father, as we, as we bring before you all the burdens that are in our hearts, help us to pray with confidence Because you are the almighty God and nothing is too great for you. Help us to pray with joy because we know that you hear our prayers. And that you desire to help us even more than we desire you to help us. Help us to pray with gratitude. Because you've already done so much. And have promised to do so much more. Let our lives now be so fully open to you that our natural response is humble obedience and transparent worship. And we pray this because of Christ Jesus. And we pray in the spirit of the prayer that he teaches us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Our reading this morning is from the book of Judges, the 11th chapter. This book is the account of God's history following, of Israel's history following the death of Joshua, following the death of this great leader and the elders who outlived him. Israel began to spiritually deteriorate. Judges recounts a repeated cycle of Israel rejecting God, God allowing them to be oppressed by foreign nations, Israel then crying out to God for help, and God raising up a leader whom God empowers to rescue them. Judges 11 is set in the context of Israel being oppressed by the Ammonites. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to inherit in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tod, Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Jephthah attempts to work out the situation with the Ammonite king, but to no avail. We pick up the story at verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. 
Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Please stand as we sing. Father, as we continue in worship, 
Let us see you and hear you. And let your word speak deeply into our hearts and our souls, individually and corporately. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Human beings are, by and large, pretty superstitious people. You know, we we have we have our rituals and and we have uh, uh, you know the the things that uh, you, we hear t- people talk about superstitions. You know, you you don't want to step on a crack. You know, as kids, step on a crack, break your mother's back. You know, we used to say that as you walk on the sidewalk. You don't want to, you know, it's, it's supposedly bad luck for a black cat to run in front of you, to walk under a ladder, though that just seems like common sense to me, not necessarily superstitious. You know, we, we, you know people will, will put a, you know, a lucky coin in their pocket or talk about wearing their lucky suit for the job interview, and, but I have to question how lucky it is if you're still doing more job interviews, whether it's really working or not. You know, we, we, there are all kinds of things. Someone said to me that the one superstition they had heard of is never start something new on a Friday. I've never heard that one before. But, you know, we have all these different superstitions. And, and, of course, if you start moving into the world of athletics, you just see that heightened even more. You know, you, if you watch a baseball game, managers will not step on the white line when they walk onto the field. Um, if you've ever watched Rafael Nadal play tennis... He has some of the most amazing rituals. And when, he, when they sit down in between, uh, when they do changeovers, he drinks water. And when he's done, he has two bottles of water. And he sets them in a precise place under his chair. And he always turns the label toward whatever end of the court he's playing on. And you, know, you watch this, you think, wow. To, to be so enamored with, with making sure that these little details are right. And what strikes me is that you have... You have these people, athletes particularly, who do this, and, and you think that they believe that anything other than skill and preparation is going to change the outcome of whatever they're doing. And yet, let's be honest, there are times where we do that when we're watching athletics, right? We're watching games. I, I, this week I was reminded one of the Cincinnati Reds pitchers threw a no-hitter in a game the other night, and it reminded me back to 1978 when we went to a Reds game and we're playing the Cardinals, and Tom Seaver pitched a no-hitter. And we got to watch that. And, and I instinctively remember watching this game, and as it got into the fifth and sixth inning, and you're realizing this might happen, after every pitch, I sat in my chair and I did this. I was kind of sweating, but I rubbed in between my fingers. He throws a pitch. Do the same thing. How many innings? I don't you know how many innings I did that. It worked. He threw a no-hitter. What's more ludicrous than thinking that rituals like that, setting up bottles, would help an athlete win, is to think that me, sitting in the 64th row of a stadium and, and rubbing my fingers, would have some bearing on the outcome of that game. It's ludicrous. And yet, there is something in us that wants to believe that if we just do the right things, we can control what feels uncontrollable. 
And there is something of that mindset in the story that we read about this man, Jephthah. Jephthah's tale is is fascinating to me. It is human nature so clear. He's raised on the eastern side of the Jordan River where a few of the tribes settle. And, and he is, uh, he's born at a time when Israel is in that cycle of, of falling away from God. And, and they, the book of Judges is it's this just continual cycle of the Israelites uh, turning away from God and worshiping idols. And God allowing some other nation to come and oppress them and enslave them. And then they cry out to God and the God hears their cry and he, he points, puts his finger on somebody and, and they are his representative and they rescue the Israelites and they live in peace for a while until they get tired of that and they start rejecting God and worshiping idols again and it starts to cycle all over. And as Jephthah grows up, the people of Israel are being oppressed by the Ammonites and they've had enough and they decide we're going to do something about it. And they call on Jephthah, but Jephthah has moved away He's, he is born into a family where his mother is not his father's wife. He's an illegitimate child. And as he gets older, his stepbrothers say, you're not having any part of our inheritance. Get out of here. And they kick him out of the house. And he takes up with some pretty shady characters in the northern part of Israel. And they form sort of this gang that roams the area and does what they want to do. And he's built up a reputation for fierceness and being a warrior. And so when they're in trouble, they call on him. And, of course, his response is, oh, you don't want me then, but you want me now. So you rejected me, but now you want me to come save you? Really? And they say, yeah, we shouldn't have done that, but will you save us? And he says, I'll save you, but I want to make sure that if I do, that you're going to make me head of this, of Gilead, of this area of Israel. You could see in Jephthah that everything that happens, everything he's doing is a bargain. Making a deal, trying to get something, get control of a situation that it seems uncontrollable. And they agree to that. And so Jephthah gathers up the troops and he heads out to battle. And as he's moving in to start the battle, it says the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. God fills him with the spirit so that he can go and win this battle. But something about that isn't quite enough for Jephthah. He wants to cover his bases. He's hedging his bets just a little bit. He wants to make sure that he's gotten everything taken care of, that he's got just that little bit extra. And so he says, God, before we go into this battle, how about we make a deal? If you you give me victory, and the first person that comes out of the door of my house when I get home, I'll sacrifice to you. And he goes in the battle, they win, they free, they free Israel from the Ammonites, and he goes home in celebration until, as he walks into his yard, his daughter comes out of the house. And celebration is now turned to sorrow and mourning and grief. And in the end, he keeps his word. He sacrifices his daughter. It's a tragic tale. I want to say right up front that I think Jephthah is wrong in the way he handles that situation. Um, You know, I'm speaking thousands of years later, so take that, you know, into consideration. But I think 
a, a rash, harmful vow like the one that Jephthah takes should have been broken. I think he should have broken that vow rather than take the life of his daughter. I, I, that would have been some consequences for him. It might well have meant that, that it, it brought back things on him. It might have even cost him his own life. But I think that would have been better. I think that would have been the right thing to do. To say that was a, ter- that was a stupid vow to make. That was a stupid deal to make. And, and, and I don't want to break that. And despite the consequences that may come upon him, it would have been the right thing to do. Marva Dawn says in her book, uh, Powers, Weakness, and, and Tabernacling of God, she makes a statement there. She says, one of the core elements of the cross is, is that God hurts more for the sinner, for the, for the victim that feels pain than for the sinner who breaks God's law. God's heart is more burdened about people who are hurting than about people who have broken the law. Because God cares about people. And we know that God is, that that child sacrifice is abhorrent to God. You read in the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, God says, says to the people, look, I know that some of the nations around you, they sacrifice their children. You're not to do that for for any reason. No. No. You have to wonder what in the world did he who in the world did he think was going to come out of his house first? And when we got home, did he typically think, you know, the first person the first thing out of the house is a goat? That's usually the one who greets me, so I think I'm safe. I, I don't know what he thought, other than maybe one of the servants. And that seems still abhorrent to us, but in that culture, servants, slaves were were basically tools of the people who owned them. It was a crazy vow to make. And what interests me is that sometimes, even though we don't, we don't sacrifice people we love, we don't, you know, we don't throw them into a flaming volcano or, or we don't burn them, sometimes in our attempts to get what we want, in our attempts to, 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 to realize what we have dreamed, we do sacrifice other people. Sometimes it is our children, our family. We've got this dream that, that, that we are enamored with and that we can't, that we just have to have. And, and we're willing to, to put our family, our children at risk in order to get it. It's, it's so important to us, and, and it, it's such a deep yearning in our souls that what, whoever we have to, to sacrifice, we'll do it. Because it's that important to us. And we look back, and, and we accomplish it, and behind us is, is this path of carnage. And it's not just about family members. It's about just other people in general. And it isn't necessarily because we're trying to accomplish something bad. I mean, Jephthah is doing a great thing for God. Jephthah is filled with the Spirit of God. God has, 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 has welcomed him and has invited him and called him to be the person to rescue Israel. It's a good thing he's doing. But he gets so wrapped up in doing it 
that he is willing to sacrifice other people to accomplish it. And in his bargaining with God, in his attempt to to make sure that he has control of the situation, there's great tragedy. I think part of our problem is that we have been sold a bill of goods. We have believed that God is most interested in success. When God is most interested in people. We think that that all that matters in our passion for God and our passion for the kingdom and for doing good things in the world is getting to this end. That if we accomplish this, if we can get to this place, if we can get to this point, if we can see the church be this, then how we get there doesn't really matter as long as we get there. But that mindset is, is just simply reveals that we don't understand the heart of God. We don't understand the nature of the kingdom. Because if we get to that end that is good and leave a carnage of people in the, strewn in the path to get there, have we really done what God wants us to do? So we're convinced that all that matters is the end. Whereas God keeps telling us the end is important, but it's the journey is important as well. It's in the journey that God speaks into us and he works in us and he changes us. And, and often God is, well, I think God is always just as concerned about the journey as he is the end. But we can become so passionate about what's important to us and having the, a cause that is right and just, and it is, that we become blind to the people we are hurting and sacrificing getting there. Someone was telling me this week about, about a movie they saw called Machine Gun Preacher. I don't know, maybe some of you have seen this movie. I've not seen it. But they were telling me about it and I did a little bit of research on it. It's, it's a story of the life of a man named Sam Childers who uh, was in a, in a biker gang and uh, who was you know, just totally away from God and, and came to faith in Christ. And we, and, and we got a burden for the orphans of Sudan. Great cause. Wonderful thing to do. And, and he, he went to the Sudan and, and he began to try to help these orphans. But he found that there was a lot of opposition to him. And the the people were not as interested in them as he was. But he was so passionate about it. And when when people began to oppose him, he took every means possible in order to to help the orphans. Including carrying around with him an AK-47 assault rifle. And, And according to the story, there were many people that he actually killed in order to build this orphanage. And to take out the people who opposed him. And you read the story. And and you hear that and you think. Okay wait something isn't quite right here. And yet he is fully convinced. That protecting those orphans. Building this orphanage. Was enough of a right and just cause. That any people that had to be hurt to get to that end. Were worth it. And I know we don't, we don't take people's lives. But we do say things 
that hurt people. And we do things that hurt people. And we ignore people or we step on people. We, we demean people. We belittle people because they don't see the vision that we see. And our vision, our passion is so important that if other people can't see it, then we shove them out of the way. And all the while, God is telling us, yeah, your vision's important and getting there is important. But what you do in the, in the process of getting there is just as important. We're so enamored with controlling life and controlling situations and getting to the end, we ignore people. I think one of the reasons we do that is because we all live with certain levels of insecurity. And that insecurity and the hurts and the disappointments and the struggles inside of us cause us to want to be valued and to feel like people look at us and see that we have worth. And so we, and we have come to see in our culture, in our society, that you get worth and you get value by accomplishing things. And so we're willing to do whatever to get to that end. And that insecurity in us and and the struggles and the disappointments in us drive us just as they do Jephthah. Every decision he makes as an adult, he keeps coming back to how he was treated as a child. You can feel it when he says to, to the leaders of Gilead, oh, you didn't want me then, but you want me now. You you can sense that insecurity in him saying, all right, fine, I'll I'll prove it to you. I'll show you that that I'm not who you you think I am, that you made a big mistake kicking me out of this place. And those disappointments and the sense of rejection is driving him forward. And because we live in a world where we all face disappointments and rejection and hurt, and we all have insecurities in us, we are tempted to make the same kinds of decisions. And it comes back to them. We, and so we try to control things. And we make bargains with God. That if he'll give us this victory, then we'll do this for him. And it ends up that really what Jephthah's doing is he's, he's offering a prayer to God. He's saying, Lord, here's my prayer. If you give me victory, I'll make the sacrifice. And I suspect that our prayers sometimes sound an awful lot like that. God, if you get me out of this situation, I'll read the Bible for an hour every day. God, if you, if you get me this job, then I'll pray for an hour every day. God, if you make this relationship happen, I'll go to church every single week. Okay, every, every three out of four Sundays. And, and often our prayers are a means of just bargaining with God. I read, was reading this week the, the story of, of uh, one mission society's uh, work in, in Korea in the, during the war in the 50s. 
And a man named Elmer Kilburn was, was leading the relief effort there. As you can imagine, you know, during the Korean War, it was just it was so tragic. All the poverty. And, and so there were, there were many organizations that were trying to work with refugees and, and work in, in, in Korea. And, and Elmer Kilburn was representing them. And he was looking for someone to help him. And, and he thought about, he met a young man that he thought this guy would be perfect. He's grown up in a family that missions was important, and, and, I, and I know it's important to him. And so he approached him about it. And the guy said, well, let me pray about it. And he, and he said, my prayer was, Lord, if you furnish a wife to go with me and all the funding that I'm going to need, then I'll go help Elmer in Korea. And he said, it was as though God said to me, almost in an audible voice, listen. If you don't obey me, you're going to miss out on a wonderful opportunity that I've prepared for you. And he went and God did miraculous things, including introducing him to his wife. You know, you, we, we have this mindset that God, you know, if we need to bargain with you. We need to make sure that, that we've got a... We've got a a right, I've got some control over what happens. And why do we do that? Because deep inside of us, we're not totally convinced that God is good and trustworthy. When you look at the story of Jephthah, the Spirit has come upon him. He's been called by God to go and to win this battle. But something in him doesn't quite believe that God is trustworthy. And so he decides he's going to have to do something to to bring some control to the situation. Because I'm not sure God's going to come through unless I promise him something really valuable to me. And deep inside of us is a struggle to believe that God is truly good and trustworthy. That God keeps his promises. That God does good for us. That, that, that struggle with believing that God is who he says he is is, is probably, probably one of the most pagan mindsets that we can have. And when you think about the, the nations that live around Israel, every one of them ha- worships a, a form of their God that is capricious and mean and and it wants to do nothing good for the people you go back to the creation stories of those nations every one of their creation stories human beings come into existence either be, either as a means of of punishment toward one of the other gods as an accident that they didn't mean to happen or as a way of uh, as a tool for controlling other gods no wonder They have no confidence in the gods doing good to them. And that's why they have to go through all the rituals that they do in order to force the gods to do what they want. That's why they have to bargain with their gods in order to get the gods to want to do something good for them, to manipulate their gods and to try to control their gods because they know deep down inside the gods they worship don't want to do anything good for them. And you compare that to our creation story. The biblical creation story is so clear. God creates human beings because he wants to. Because he wants relationship with human beings. Because he loves us. 
and through the history of human beings, God is continually proving that he doesn't have to be manipulated or tricked or bargained with or tried to control because he loves to do good things for us. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew's gospel. He says, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. If you human beings who are so messed up love to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Because it's at the heart of who God is. And instead of thinking that we have to bargain with God or to convince God or to try to control the situation because we're just not quite sure God's going to come through, we're reminded over and over and over again that God loves to give good gifts to his children. God loves to give good gifts to us even more than we are willing to ask him. I'm sure that you, you'd almost have to be uh, to live on another planet this week to have not heard or read something about the uh, the debacle with the replacement referees of the National Football League. I mean, I was watching the game Monday night as a Packers fan. Wow, that was irritating. That the 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 referees basically gave the game away. And what intrigued me though was that Tuesday. You know, there were all kinds of articles about the referees and how bad they were and how they were destroying the game and and all the things that had happened out of that. And it wasn't just on sports sites. It was on news sites. And And there was articles on Wednesday and there were articles on Thursday. And it just kept going and going. And it struck me in the middle of that, nobody's talking at all about the game. All anyone's talking about is referees. Every article was about the referees and how, how they had caused the, the Packers to lose this game and, and how they had caused people who play fantasy football to, to lose that week and, and how they had caused, you know, there were millions of dollars lost at people who gambled on the games. Every article was about the referees. Hardly anything about how did the teams play? How, how, you know, what did the players do? It was about the referees. I think it's one of the reasons why the National Football League decided we got to put an end to this. We've got to settle this disagreement with our regular officials because people aren't talking about the games, they're talking about the officials. And when you get to the end of this story with Jephthah, what do you think about? We don't think, wow, God used Jephthah to bring about this amazing victory for Israel. All we're thinking about is, how could Jephthah do that to his daughter? It's all about the vow. And when we bargain with God, when we try to control life and try to control God, then the focus of our lives and our prayer is now turned fully on us instead of on God. And we completely turn things around the way God intended them to be. And when the focus is on us, we don't have faith and hope 
and joy and peace. We have everything but that. And I think that's what surprises me the most about the fact that there's only one instance of Jephthah mentioned in the New Testament. When you get to Hebrews 11 and the author is talking about this litany of great people of faith, you get to verse 32 and he says, and and what else can I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets and all these other people who do great things for the kingdom of God. And you read that and you're not just surprised, you're a little bit irritated. Why would he include Jephthah after what he's done? I think it's because, because God wants us to understand that the story of Jephthah is a story of God's grace in spite of. In spite of the mistakes that he makes. In spite of the horrible decisions that he makes. In spite of the way that he turns the story upside down. God's grace is still present and at work. And I am so glad. Because I, like you, have my moments when I want to bargain with God. And I, like you, have my moments when I want to try to control life. I want to try to control God. And I want to try to control the situations that come to me. And I want to put God in a box. And I want to make it about me instead of about Him. And because, when, because I sometimes become so passionate about what I believe is just and right and good. And about what I want. That I leave a carnage of people behind me. Just like you do. And it's amazing to remember in those moments that God is still good and God is still trustworthy and God's grace is still present and at work in each of us. But here's the difference. We can decide that we're going to live in the grace of God and let go of control and bargaining and find that God not only works in us and uses us, but we are less apt to leave that trail of carnage behind us. Or we can, we can live in the grace of God and keep bargaining and keep controlling and keep hurting people. And God has called us as individuals and as the church to let go and to trust Him because He's gracious and He's good and He's trustworthy and He's for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to see who you are. And what you're doing. 
to understand your grace in our lives and in this world. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to join with me in the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin. I think it's important for us to not only individually but corporately to acknowledge that we fall short and that God is gracious in forgiving. Let's pray together. O God, your being is love and all your works toward us are mercy. Forgive us when we stray from our confession of faith into thinking that you are like the gods of this world who demand destructive sacrifices in exchange for their favor. Cleanse us from the injustice that goes hand in hand with idolatry. Illumine our minds with knowledge of God by your Spirit, whoever points to Christ, that we may return to you in true repentance, acknowledging you as the source, the giver, whose attitude toward us is one abounding in unfailing generosity and steadfast love. In the name of Jesus Christ, who trusted you through death to new life. Amen. stand with us. Now unto the King who reigns over all and never changes or turns. Unfailing justice, unfading grace, whose promises remain. Yes, your promises remain. To the king who reigns over all and never changes or turns. Unfailing justice, unfading grace, the promises remain. Yes, your promises remain.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.